You're listening to In the Studio with Michael Card. The session is made possible by our friends with the Christian Standard Bible. Learn about this new translation and the many ways you can enjoy the CSB. Explore online when you visit csbible.com. So good to be back with you again. This is in the studio with Michael Card, and I'm Wayne Shepard. Producer Joe Carlson is on hand as well. And together, this team likes to put together these podcasts for our listeners. Michael, I always look forward to these sessions together. I, I do, I do too, Wayne. And uh, what I feel I, I just have to share is that in in between takes, we're just laughing and having a good time. Oh, care, careful, careful! <laughs> Don't give away what you shouldn't. <laughs> no, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do that. But you just made the okay. statement. This is what people should be hearing, and we're, you know, we're cutting up and being silly and uh, and having a good time. So I think yeah. that's important. As friends do, right? Yes, and exactly. That's, that's part of friendship. Sure. Exactly. Well, seriously, we do have a wonderful program planned here. We're going to hear your teaching on the mind of Jesus. Yeah. Our continuing series from the Sandy Cove Bible Conference, Part One of the Mind of Jesus, coming up. And I'm excited too that uh, Dr. Tom Schreiner. He is a he's a guy that was on the CSB translation team, and he's mm-hmm. also written um, the CSB is doing a series of commentaries now, and his commentary on First and Second Peter and Jude has just come out, and uh, he's going to talk to us about persecution and suffering, and uh, I'm so looking forward to hear what he has to say. Yeah, all right, that's yeah. coming up in the second half of the program today. We so appreciate listeners leaving reviews, at, yeah. for instance, at Apple Podcasts or Google Play or wherever you can leave a review for this program. Do you see that one in front of us here from on, on Apple? I do. It says, uh, what a blessing. I've been listening for several months now and find Michael's teaching and music a very real help in my walk with Christ. You help keep me grounded. Thanks, Mike. It doesn't have a name, hmm. but uh, yeah, what an encouraging thing to say to, that you help keep hmm. someone grounded. But again, and we, I like to... You know, stress this point. If anything we do has helped you, it's not us that's helping you. It's someone else. It's the Lord. So, yeah. but thanks for the encouragement. Totally agree with that. Yeah. And those reviews are important just simply because we want as many people as possible to know about what's going on through the ministry that the Lord has given us here on this yeah. podcast. Yeah. Uh, here's a Facebook comment from Darlene praying for your writing, Mike, of the next book on Jesus. Eager to read mm. it. I am too. Always inspired by your insight into the intimacy of Jesus' heart. Me, I am too. <laughs> yeah, right. And you're writing it. <laughs> I'm really, yeah. She says, I'm always inspired by your insight into the intimacy of Jesus' heart for the people he interacts with. Your teaching on John, which she said she heard today, helps me to hear better the heart of John for helping people hear the fullness of Jesus' life given for each soul who would come. The whispering asides, the better than, and the misunderstanding motifs in John really do proclaim a fuller understanding of Jesus. Looking forward to your teaching at the Winsome Women Conference in October. That tells me you're back on the road again teaching, Mike. That's right. I just came back from Anoka, Minnesota, uh, but I'm going to be driving up to uh, Michigan for the this this retreat. It's me and 9,000 women, so it's a pretty cool time, okay. Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, say hi to my cousin, Sherry, who always attends yeah. that, if you would. If I remember correctly, you said she was the coolest person you ever knew growing up. 
Growing up, she Growing was up? a teenager I looked up to. Yes, yeah. Well, I'm Very I'm cool. anxious. I'm so anxious to find her in that crowd and meet her. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's get started here with our program today. The way of wisdom is a song that begins this commentary from Mike on the mind of Jesus. The way of wisdom starts out with a step of holy fear. And it makes its way along by every good word that you hear It has to do with passion and it has to do with pain It has to do with one who has both died and rose again Died and rose again And the way of wisdom is living The path of peace is forgiving of understanding lies and not how much you know for the pathway is a person that you come to love and so you can stop pretending that it all depends on you it's not how much you love as much as how much he loves you how much he loves you and the way of wisdom is living the path of peace is forgiving Behold the man of meaning Behold he is the Lord The way of wisdom beckons us To find the end of fear That perfect love pursues Wisdom did not come to simply speak The words of truth He's the word that makes us true is forgiving Behold the man of meaning Behold he is the Lord Behold he is the Lord Behold he is the Lord Let's talk a little bit about the elegance of his thought and that's a word uh, that I want to use more and more. I mean, I know Jesus is the Son of God, and I, we worship Him, and He, He gave His life for us, and you know, there 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 isn't language uh, that can describe who He is and what He means. But I I'm I'm using the word elegant more because He's He's an elegant thinker. Uh, he thinks in metaphors, and and He loves uh, what I call radical reversal in His mind. He loves turning things upside down. So in order to be really rich, you got to be poor. In order to be really mature, you got to be a child. And he, you know, he's always turning things around and and unexpected. And uh, I, I just think that's really cool. Um, part of uh, the elegance of his his mind is the way he engages with the Hebrew Bible. And you notice, I, I try to avoid the term Old Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. That's from going to Israel a lot. You know, we need to learn to. To train ourselves to say Hebrew Bible more because Old Testament sometimes re- refers to what this idea that that's that's all over and that's the old covenant's over a new covenant that's a new thing so you know and sometimes in in you know we're a New Testament church which means you know we don't really read the Old Testament well unless you read the Hebrew Bible when John the Baptist says behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world you have no idea who that is unless you've read Exodus right 
So uh, you'll notice I try to say Hebrew Bible. But one of the, the ways he engages with the Hebrew Bible is, I'll say it this way, he doesn't really quote, Jesus doesn't really quote the Hebrew Bible. He thinks in the Hebrew Bible. You know, there are all these uh, allusions and references. And in the old days, I would have said, well, yeah, he's quoting Leviticus. And Levit I think Leviticus is his favorite book to quote. Um, but I, now I think in terms of, yeah, he doesn't exactly really quote the, the Hebrew Bible. He, um, he, thinks, he thinks in the Hebrew Bible. And I wish I could think in the Bible. Maybe that's a, that's a good goal for us. And we've talked about his rabbinic side. He, he, he thinks rabbinically uh, as well. And we talked about him adding to the, the fences around the, the law. That was all Matthew 5, by the way, about vows and justice and sexual maturity and mercy and that sort of thing. And, and is it Matthew 7, washing your hands, that sort of thing. Uh, but one of the other innovations, rabbinic innovations Jesus makes is to, uh, I don't know if you talked about this yet, to the, what are referred to as the pillars of piety. There are three pillars of piety. If you're a Jewish person, these are non-negotiable. You do these things. And if you're a Gentile convert, you do these things. You give to the poor, uh, you pray, and you fast. You just do those things, right? I grew up in a world where fasting, well, you know, my blood sugar gets low, so I kind of have trouble with fasting, so, well, I don't really fast. Um, unfortunately, I still sort of think that way. But in Jesus' world, those aren't negotiable. But Jesus adds something to the, those pillars of piety. Can you remember what he added? He, what he added is you do those all in secret. When you fast, you don't let people know. When you pray, you don't let people know. You go into the inner room. When you give to the poor, and this is a unique saying of Jesus, you don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Uh, so that, that's an example of his mind. He adds to the, to the pillars of piety. So he's not rejecting Judaism. He is uh, he's refining and, and redefining, and certainly he redefines. Um, another aspect of his mind is that he's multilingual. Of course, everyone's multilingual. Right? We're monolingual, but Jesus speaks certainly Aramaic, as everyone else does, and we hear him speaking Aramaic. Lama, lama, sabachthani is Aramaic. Um, but he speaks Hebrew and reads Hebrew in, in the synagogue, and then he speaks Greek. Um, enough Greek to get by, or who knows? Of course, there's the other side. There are the people who go, well, he's the son of God, so he can speak all languages. Eh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't think this, this, the deck is stacked in his favor that way, but... Uh, certainly he, uh, he has uh, some, some pretty impressive gifts. So maybe he can't just speak any language he wants to speak. But in the Gospels, we see him speaking uh, three, three languages because everyone speaks in three languages. It's a multilingual uh, culture. Um, so let's talk a little bit about who, who he thinks he is. Now, I'm asking that question respectfully, right? Who does Jesus think he is? Now, in John... Uh, 853, they ask it not so respectfully. <laughs> Just who do you think you are, right? So let's talk about who Jesus, uh, how he understands, his, his self-understanding. First of all, I said he thinks in metaphors. Well, he thinks of himself in metaphors, and those are the seven I am sayings in John. So let me just give those to you really quickly. Uh, the first one is in 635, and that's where Jesus uh, says that he's the bread. He's the bread. He, he contrasts the manna, 
in the, in the, in the, in the Hebrew Bible. Can I do a quick sidebar on manna? Manna, manna is a really interesting word. It's my favorite Hebrew word. Uh, it's untranslatable. Um, a question in Hebrew is ma. Okay? It, it, you're in the streets of Jerusalem. You see someone, you go, you go, maze. What is that? Or, uh, and na is an exclamation point. Hosanna. Na. na. That means, oh, save. Exclamation point. Uh, mara na tha. See, that's na. It's a, Exclamation point. So that's here's a na, and there's. So that's the translation of manna. Question mark exclamation point. How cool is that? Is that not cool? Because the the Israelites gather this stuff and they go, manna. You know what what is this? Please, is it? You can't really translate it. And interesting to me, Jesus appropriates this image kind of for himself. In in some senses, Jesus is kind of a question mark and exclamation point. But he's the living manna. He's the, the manna that's come alive. You eat that bread, you'll never, be, you'll never be hungry again. And when he reveals himself this way, uh, it really is a, it marks a, a, a shift in his ministry. One of the things I'm working on, I invite you to kind of do this with me. I'm trying to understand the trajectory. I think his ministry has a trajectory. And let me, in a, in a vastly oversimplified way, it, it sort of, it starts out in obscurity. He begins solo. Then he starts doing some miracles and starts gathering the disciples and his popularity skyrockets, right? Very early in the ministry, 5,000, you know, men. So how many with women and children, right? Huge, you know, have a boat ready so they don't push me into the lake. They're, they're pressing in on these huge crowds. And then he starts talking about that he's the bread. This is John 6. And you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And the crowds go, what? Right? Perfect moment to explain himself. And what does he say? No, my flesh is real meat and my blood is real drink. You know, and they go, okay, that's it. We, we're, we're. And so I, I, begin, I believe that beginning in John 6, there's a subtle erosion of his popularity. So by the time, and again, this is just me reconstructing. I'm not going to be dogmatic about this. I'm just trying to understand. Uh, so by, by the time we get to Matthew 17, which is one of my favorite stories, Peter and Jesus come back to Capernaum. There's no crowd there. There's not this massive crowd like there always is in Capernaum. You know, they can't even get to Peter's house. Usually there's so many people. There's been a subtle erosion and only the temple tax people are there when, when they get there in chapter 17. And I would suggest to you, I mean, I know what you're thinking. Oh, triumphal entry. Jesus enters and there's, you know, there's this huge crowd. Well, that huge crowd is going to be there anyway because they're coming into Jerusalem for Passover. Now, there, there, there is a group of people around Jesus, obviously his followers who are shouting Hosanna, right? But that massive crowd coming into Jerusalem, that happens every year for Passover. So uh, I suggest to you that there is a sort of a shape to his, the trajectory to his ministry. And uh, you're thinking, well, what does that matter? I'm not sure what that matters. I just want to know. If there is one, I want to know it. Because I want to know everything that can be known about this, this person. So, and that, that has to do with him saying that he's uh, the bread. He's the light of the world. That's 812. And uh, a couple of times in chapter 8 and chapter 9, he reveals himself that way. And um, at, 
the second time, the Jews think he's lost his mind, and oddly enough, they wonder if he's thinking about committing suicide. D does that verse ever bother you? You know, and I've, 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 I've thought it through and thought it through, and just this morning I think, you know, that's another way of them saying he's deranged. He's deranged. He's likely to do anything. So, um, so that's the light of the world. Then in, uh, in chapter 10, he says two things that are really one thing, and a lot of people confuse them. He says in 10.9, he's the gate for the sheep. And then in 10.11, he says he's the good shepherd. But what you need to know is the, the shepherd is the gate. That's the same thing. And Jesus does this sometimes. He'll say the same thing different ways to try to help people understand. Now, there are critics of Jesus who will say, oh, he was obscure and he was speaking in ways, you know, that were sort of designed to, uh, to not be understood only by the elite and that kind of thing. Let me tell you, no one says the same thing over and over in different ways. He's trying to be obscure. He's trying to make a point and he's making it perfectly clear. But in, in, uh, in his world, the shepherd lays down in the gap and becomes the gate. A, a, a million Jewish guides have explained this to me, so that's where I've, I've, I've come to understand this. So the gate for the sheep is the shepherd. So he is, he is, the, good, he is the good shepherd as opposed to all the other uh, Pharisees who, um, you know, Jesus says are, are not good shepherds. And when Jesus reveals himself this way, the Jews say, you're raving mad. You're unhinged. You're the gate and you're unhinged, so to speak. In 1125, uh, he speaks to Martha and Mary about being the resurrection uh, and the life. He posits himself to their dilemma. Uh, I am the resurrection and the life. In, in 14.6, after the washing of the disciples' feet, and, and they have this long discussion after the meal, and uh, Thomas, I think, says, how, how can we know the way? And Jesus responds by saying, I'm the way. He's positing himself as the answer. And then in one of the most isolated statements in 15.1, he says he's the true vine. And we're just not sure what the context of that was. I can tell you the 90% position in the commentaries is that he's walking by a big vine that's sculpted on the, the, the front of the temple. And he's referring, you know, referring to himself as the true vine uh, as opposed to this big piece of sculpture. Uh, and the point there is we're the branches. He's the vine. We're the branches. We have to stay connected to the vine. So those are the metaphorical ways he thinks of himself. But here's some non-metaphorical non ways uh, he thinks of himself. He refers to himself over 80 times this way is son of man. He's the son of man. And what you need to know is in Judaism, son of man just means person. And you go to, you go to Israel today, you'll hear Ben Adam. Ben, son, Adam, man. Ben Adam. Hey, he's a, he's a great Ben-Adam. He's a great person. A person. But Jesus appropriates this, and it's this way in the Psalms, too. I was reading uh, the Superior New Translation, the CSB, and in, uh, in the Psalter, it translates a son of man. Now, the other translations don't do that because it, it's confusing. But, uh, but CSB will, will talk about a son of man, a person. And, of course, Jesus just changes that article to the definite article. He's the Son of Man. He's the definitive human being. I mean, I would sort of paraphrase it that way. It's connected to his, to his authority, to his suffering, 
and to his future coming. So it's, it, it has a, a wealth of meanings to it. One of my favorites, and I want to read this passage, is uh, Jesus refers to himself as the judge. But it's, um, the qualifications are what are interesting to me. He's been given the authority to judge, and he is the judge, but he refuses to judge anybody. Why? Because I haven't come to judge the world. I've come to save the world. I've got the authority to judge. The Father's given, let me, let me read it to you. It's 1244, 1244. Jesus cried out, the one who believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. There, hear that language? That's his favorite circumlocution for God. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I've come as a light, there it is, to the world, so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The, the, his word, your response to his word is what judges you, right? Um, the things I've said are just what the Father told me to say. That's the last thing he says, okay? So he's the judge who's been given authority, but he doesn't use that authority to judge people because he hasn't come to do that. That's how his mind works, right? That's how his mind works. Um, we talked about this already. He's the sent one. That's his principal identity in John. We've talked a lot about that. Um, and he's the Lord of the Sabbath. That's Matthew 12, 1 through 8, and the parallels in Mark 2 and Luke 6. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He is uh, the prophet likened to Moses. That's, uh, I think that's a, a, the main theme, one of the main themes in John. Uh, and there's this question mark about what that means. Sometimes you'll read, are you the prophet in John? And what they're referring to is Deuteronomy 18, the prophet likened to Moses. God says, I'm, in the last days, I'm going to send another prophet like Moses. And what is the quali qualifying mark of the prophet likened to Moses? Because Jesus sees himself as, as this prophet. The qualifying mark of the prophet likened to Moses is he only says what God tells him to say. Right? Which is what he just said in that last passage I read. Like Moses, he only says what God tells him to say. They're not my words. They're the words of the Father. Okay, so he's the prophet like unto Moses, he's the Lord of the Sabbath, he's the sent one, he's the judge who judges no one, he's the son of man, the true vine, the way, the truth, the life, the resurrection and the life, the good shepherd, the gate, the light of the world, and the bread of life. So all those things and more. There's not enough language to describe who he is, but those are some of the metaphors that he, he in his own mind, because we're looking at his mind, in his own mind, that's how he understands himself. Okay? Okay, one more. Are you interested in hearing Jesus' list of non-negotiables? Yeah. Maybe you're not. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I've got, I've got about seven or eight of them. And I'll just read them to you and give you the, the references so you can look, up, look them up. The first three he prefaces by saying, you cannot be my disciples unless you do this. Okay? So these are the non-negotiables. The first one is Luke 14, 26. You have to hate your father, mother, sisters, and even your own life. You can't be his disciples unless you do that. And what's that? what does that really mean? It's hyperbole. What he's saying is you've got to love me so much that compared to the love you have for your family, it looks like hate. Okay? Uh, Luke 14, 27, he says, you can't be my disciples unless you take up your cross. Non-negotiable. What does that mean? Taking up your cross is dying to yourself, saying no to yourself, okay? Self-death. Self 
And Luke 14, 33, he says, you can't be my disciples unless you say goodbye to your possessions. Bonhoeffer says, you possess things as though you possess them not. They're not your possessions anymore. You don't own anything. He owns everything, right? He owns everything. Okay? Here's the second group, and there are four of these. These are prefaced by you must, but I still say that's a non-negotiable. You must do this. John 3, uh, 3 and 5, he says, you must be born again. You can't be his disciples unless you're born again. And what does that mean? That means a spiritual transformation that he does. It's not you trying to be good. You've got to stop. If you're trying to be good enough, you need to give up on that today because that doesn't work. It's, it's allowing yourself to be transformed by his, his spirit. It's spiritual work. You su submit, you surrender, and he transforms your life and the spiritual birth that he talks about in John 3. And in John 8, 24, he says, if you do not believe in me that I am who I say I am, you'll die. So in other words, you've got to believe that he is who he says he is, the sent one, all the, that list that we just read, you know, the bread of life, uh, uh, all those things, the way, the truth, the life, the good shepherd, all those things. If you don't believe those things, you're going to die. Um, you must, John 13, 34, this is the new commandment. You must love one another. You can't be his disciples unless you, unless you love people. That's not negotiable. And you don't get to pick who you love and who you don't love. Okay? You know? Love your neighbor. Okay, yeah, well, I'm, I'm good with that. Well, what if your neighbor is your enemy? Because Jesus says you've got to love your enemy. What if your neighbor is your enemy? Uh, it's non-negotiable. It's really, it kind of simplifies your life, doesn't it? You don't have to think about it. Non-negotiable. Uh, and then finally, uh, Luke 17, 4, if someone sins against you, you must forgive them. You can't be his disciple unless you do that. And what is the basis for me, for, if you sin against me, what's my basis of forgiving you? The basis of me forgiving you is the fact that I've been forgiven. And Jesus, in his mind, if you don't forgive other people, it, it kind of indicates that you don't understand that you've been forgiven. You kind of don't get it. And you're pretty ungrateful if you don't forgive other people because you, he has done what all, all he has done to forgive you, okay? So one more, one more group, and these, these are uh, prefaced by do not, but I still put these under non-negotiables. This is Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge, and you will not be judged, okay? And unless you become a child, you cannot, cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus looks so weary from the worries of the day But the look on his face lighted when the children came his way Before he could reach out to them and join them in their play His grown-up band of followers told the kids to go away Let the children come don't dare drive them away and then the kingdom comes hear the holy foolish things they say the springtime of their life decides the adults they'll become so let the children come please let the children come of childhood lasts a lifetime if you try 
simple trusting faith they own keeps scholars mystified and so the lord adopts us as his daughters and his sons for the kingdom is for children please let the children come let the children come don't dare drive them away kingdom comes hear the holy foolish things they say the springtime of their life decides the adults they'll become so let the children come please let the children come With that, we've come to the halfway point of this session. It's so encouraging to see the notes that come in from those who listen to these sessions in the States and around the globe. No matter where you hear us, help us get the word out about this gathering of like minds by sharing the link for this podcast. We hope you'll share your thoughts on the Michael Card Music Facebook page or reach us directly when you send your comments, song requests, or questions via email and write to us at inthestudio at michaelcard.com. These conversations are just a start, and we want to invite you to go deeper. Check out more of Michael's insights through his books, music, and Bible conferences. Explore all that is waiting for you at michaelcard.com. Well, there's more music and conversation coming your way as we pause for this message here in the studio with Michael Card. This month, we're excited to point you to a study tool that is a little different. It's the Christian Standard Commentary Series. You'll find the work of many noted scholars who offer their researched insights balanced with real-world applications. Search for the Christian Standard Commentary at csbible.com and explore the various Bible books that are now available in this series. And when you order, be sure to apply your 30% discount on the CSB purchase through LifeWay. Type in the studio as one word in the promotion code for your 30% discount with LifeWay. Many fine Bible scholars have contributed their examination and analysis of the Bible, and now you can benefit from their years of study. There are many books in this series to choose from. This could be a great opportunity for you to jump into a more focused approach to learning the meaning behind the scriptures. I hope you take the next step in serious Bible study. Search for The Christian Standard Commentary now at csbible.com. Well, I've been looking forward to this next conversation, Michael. I know you have too. Dr. Tom Schreiner is with us. He's Associate Dean of the School of Theology at Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville. He's the James Buchanan Harrison Professor of New Testament Interpretation and Professor of Biblical Theology but he's just Tom to us. He's very graciously said we could call him Tom. Well, that that's that's a bit of a struggle with me, but I'm going to I'm going to do my best to not uh, not call him Dr. Schreiner. Let me also say this. Tom and I were to work together on CSB. He was on that committee, and he's the dean of the school where my grandfather went to seminary. So, uh oh boy. Yeah, I have all kinds of admiration for uh for Tom. So thanks, Tom, for joining us. <laughs> great, great to be with you. I should mention, too, that he's the author of First and Second Peter and Jude in the Christian Standard Commentary series, and that's what we want to focus on here, Michael. Yes, I'm holding that volume in my hand right now. What a beautiful series this is. 
And thank you for this work. I know you you re rewrote the commentary, right? A second time for a second edition? Yeah, I I did, and it, it was about fifteen years later. And I actually did a there was I did a lot more research. It, I didn't just re you know it's not just the new cover. I really uh, uh-huh. investigated new research and the new commentaries that came out, and I just I love the letters more than ever. It was what a what a privilege it was. Uh, it was, a, it was a great joy. Well, I, w- I would love to talk a little bit about um, the, just the life situation of, of mostly First Peter, but First and Second Peter, and, and uh, how Peter, I mean, to me, he's telling these people who they are. They don't know who they are anymore. But talk to us about the life situation and the suffering of believers in, in that culture. Yeah, it's, cl- it's clear in reading First Peter that the believers are uh, undergoing a hard time. I mean, Peter uses the word suffering. You know, it's interesting, though, when we look at the letter, he never says anything about physical suffering, which, uh, you know, in the United States, when we think of suffering, we automatically think of physical suffering. Maybe they were suffering physically, but the suffering he mentions, you could read chapter four, the first uh, five or six verses for this, uh, the suffering he mentions is verbal abuse and discrimination and people mocking them. Probably, you know, it affected them economically, getting jobs and that sort of thing. So I think that's, I think people experience that today, right? Um, you, you know, we, we recognize now we are a minority in this culture. And so the kind of suffering Peter is talking about I think is present in the United States. Of course, physical suffering is more intense and uh, more uh, psychologically traumatic, I think. But we don't want to lessen uh, what Peter says here. It's, you're still suffering if people are ridiculing, ridiculing you and abusing you or discriminating against you in some way. Well, do you think there's a break there at 412? I mean, I, I, I've always heard that and at 412, he's heard about the fire, and there's this fresh outbreak of persecution. Does it get more intense after 412? Yeah, that, that theory has been popular. It's, I don't, it's not as popular today, and I don't, I don't think so. I think, you know, I think right from the beginning of the letter we see in 1, 6, and 7, the, the suffering there is pretty intense already. So I don't think he got a fresh report. I think he, I think he planned the letter. Okay. So that at the end he would uh, vi- revisit the issue again and remind them of, as he says, you know, it's amazing, isn't it? None of us would write this. He says, "If you suffer, you're blessed." <laughs> so that's <laughs> yeah. back to the teaching of Jesus, isn't it? Uh, Tom, this uh, this commentary is part of the Christian Standard Commentary series. CSB.com is the website. But who did you write this for? Is this is this for the layman? It's for it's for laymen, it's for pastors, it's for us college students, seminary students. Yeah, I think um, I think the ordinary person who wants to study, right, could pick up this commentary, and I don't think they'd have a hard time understanding um, what what I'm writing there. Yeah, as you went through this and 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 redid it, so to speak, um, what what's what struck you? What what new revelation did you get yourself personally? I, I don't know if I got a new revelation, but I I think in reading these letters, 
I was impressed again. I mean, what what what's distinctive about these letters? I think it's that God God's grace is given to us in Christ, that amazing and wonderful and transforming and liberating grace. But but all these letters say that grace should uh, change our lives. That we're not perfect, right? But but God but God's grace doesn't leave us where we started. It it transforms us. It makes us new. And I think you know Jude saying that. I think Second Peter's saying that. I think First Peter's saying that. Well, you know, First Peter chapter one: Be holy as I am holy. We all fall short in many ways, of course. Where none of us uh, has arrived. But there is a real call in these letters to live, to live out that new life in Christ. As you know, as Peter ends, right? Second Peter, but grow in grace, and then the knowledge of our mm-hmm. Lord and Savior uh, Jesus Christ. I, I think that sums Beautiful. up well these yeah. three letters. I've always struggled to uh, to to derive kind of a personality sketch of Peter. I mean, the the one thing I can see is that he's. He very graciously extends to us. I mean, Jesus gave him the title that he was the rock, and Peter says that we are to be living stones. I see that as a gracious thing. What what of Peter's personality? And give us a little personality sketch that you've derived from working so so much on these letters. Well, Peter, I mean, we could talk about this and a long time, couldn't we, Michael? It's fascinating. I mean, Peter. Yeah. You know, I think Peter is the first among equals and of, of the apostles, and uh, clearly he's got, uh, I think, a extroverted personality. He's the first to speak up. He'll mm. say glorious things like, you are the Christ, or we have come to know and we have believed you, the Holy One of God. Or he'll say uh, wrong things like, you're not going to go to the cross, or don't wash my feet. Um, mm-hmm. So <laughs> he's impulsive. Uh, at times, uh, but he's also extravagant in his love, and uh, and and we see. I think we see. You know, by the time he writes First Second Peter, he's an older man. He's he's matured. He's he's wiser. He, he again, of course, he's not perfect, but I think you know that the ups and downs of his life, uh, the, the swings we saw at the beginning, they're not there in the same way um, because. God, God has used the strong, extroverted personality, and those all personalities are a blessing. But we need people like that. Uh, we need extroverted people in our churches and our communities who love Jesus and are willing to speak up. And you know, um, sometimes if you're more introverted, we protect ourselves so we don't say something dumb. And but Peter, we can appreciate a Peter. Peter was willing to speak up and sometimes say something dumb and. We all learned from that because what the extroverts like Peter say, we're probably all thinking, even if we don't say it. Mm. Well, what had his experience of suffering been up to the point that he writes the letters? Had had suffering, had persecution broken out in the church? Well, yeah, I mean, we don't know a ton about Peter's life, but we do know in Acts chapter 12, James, uh, the brother of John, was put to death by Herod Agrippa I. This is in the early 40s, and so uh, a persecution had broken out in Jerusalem, but it seems as if from the book of Acts earlier, the apostles were spared. But on this occasion, Peter's arrested, and it seems 
You know, mm. the Lord didn't specifically reveal to Peter that he'd be delivered. So that we we read about the, the night before he was to be brought forth, and James had already died, right? Been put to death by Herod. Mm-hmm. Peter would have every reason to think he'd be put to death, but you there's that marvelous story where he's guarded by 16 soldiers. Obviously, Herod doesn't want him to get loose. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. the, the angel comes and delivers him. And one of my favorite parts of the story, you remember when the 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 gate opens and Peter's out in the street and the and the angel leaves them and Peter's like, well, I guess this isn't a dream. <laughs> you know, uh, Peter, Peter didn't know he was going to be delivered. And, you know, a little bit of speculation, who knows? But, hey, the night before he's to be brought out, he was sleeping soundly. It's, it, it reads as if in the midst of all that stress and trauma, he was trusting the Lord. So um, we don't know. We don't know. You know, we don't know so much about Peter's life. We don't know if he suffered in any other particular ways. But the tradition is, and I think the tradition is right, that uh, Peter uh, lost his life in Rome and was crucified upside down. And I think there's reasons to believe that Mm -hmm. tradition is accurate. But, of course, that was after these letters were written. Tom, I think, uh, speaking for myself, I'm far more familiar with First and Second Peter than I am Jude, and yet we have Jude in the in the canon. What is the takeaway from the book of Jude? Yeah, Jude is written to uh, ch- churches that are threatened by false teachers. And I think these false teachers are saying the theology of grace means we can live any way we wish. It doesn't matter how we live. We can live sinful lives and we'll be fine. So I think Peter, I mean, Jude writes to that situation. So what Jude emphasizes, as the believers, you need to live a new life. And so I, I think here's, I think the key verse in Jude is in verse 20, keep yourself in God's love. Keep yourself in God's love uh, through growing in the faith, by praying, waiting for Jesus to come again. So, so Jude really emphasizes perseverance. But then, this is so brilliant, at the beginning and the end of the letter, he emphasizes that God preserves us. So, you know, he kind of keeps that tension. Hmm. Preserve yourselves, but then he says at the beginning and the end, well, actually, God preserves you. (laughs) So, it's a call, you know, it's a call to be vigilant as disciples of Christ, not not to grow lax. But Jude doesn't forget about God's grace. In fact, he frames the whole letter with uh, with the emphasis on God's grace. Yeah, but isn't that true? I mean, we're we're God doesn't expect us to ever sit back and just depend on Him fully. We have a responsibility uh, too. We, we need to make choices. We need to we need to uh, strive and seek the Lord and uh, seek to live in a way that's pleasing to Him, all the while recognizing. We can't do it on our own. We need we need we need God's help. But you know, some people read these letters and think, "Well, that sounds kind of legalistic." But you got to remember that these false teachers were saying, "It doesn't matter how you live at all, and everything mm-hmm. you do is okay. Just follow all your desires." So, I think it's very important to remember the context. Jude was not a legalist. He wasn't. He wasn't just saying you know, try harder to be good every day, or something like that. He, he's, he's responding to a situation where these 
so-called believers are saying uh, you can live however you want, however licentiously and 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 wickedly you want to, and it won't, and it doesn't matter. So that's very important to remember. Well, I have a detailed question. What what about the similarities between Jude and First Peter? Are, is Jude a disciple of Peter, or is Peter a disciple of Jude? Um, are they drawing from one common source? I, I've never been able to make sense out of yeah, that. Yeah, that's a great question. So, just for the listeners, Jude, Jude and Second Peter two, those are very similar. You read those two chapters, and you think, "What? What's going on there?" Uh, you know, there are a number of possibilities. There's a common source. Uh, you mentioned that, Michael. There's a um, mm-hmm. uh, Jude is borrowing from Peter. Peter is borrowing from Jude. My, my view, I talk about this in the commentary, my view is that Peter borrowed from Jude. And uh, that's no mm. problem, you know, and we, we, have, we have strict rules of plagiarism in our culture that you have to give attribution if you do that. But that wasn't true in the ancient world. They didn't. There was no mm. copyright, and I think Peter found what Jude wrote helpful, and uh, so and he reworks it right. If you if you compare the two, it's not exactly the same, but I think he found it helpful and and mm. it applied to his situation, and so he he reworks it and applies it to his situation. With those. Apostles who are inspired can use sources. Not everything comes direct, right, from mm-hmm. God. They can use sources, and Peter, I think, clearly does. Mm-hmm. Was Jude this person who would have been tremendously revered because he was Jesus' um, you know, brother? Yeah, yeah. Jude and James are both uh, Jesus's half brothers. We we know a lot more about James than mm-hmm. about Jude, but. But I, yeah, I think I think that he would have been looked up to. Obviously, he became a leader in the church. We actually read about uh, his children late. Two of his children later in church history, they were called before Domitian. <laughs> right. Uh, so right. Um, yeah, I think I think he would have had a, a very high reputation. Although you know, when we read, I, you don't you don't get any sense of sentimentality in the early church. You know, like all kinds mm-hmm. of things we'd like to know, like where are they buried and what else did they do in their lives? I guess God intentionally so designed it, so we don't know any of those things. <laughs> we, we we really know nothing about Jude's personality. Well, someday, someday we'll meet him and get to know him. Well, I remember the story with Domitian. Domitian was going to wipe out the descendants of Jesus, but then he sees them, and they're just sort of these scruffy people, and he lets them yeah, go, they're farmers, right? and he says, well, these people are harmless. Yeah, <laughs> 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 exactly. Well, the book we've been talking about is a commentary. It's in the Christian Standard Commentary series, First and Second Peter and Jude, and we've been talking with Dr. Tom Schreiner, who put this together so helpfully for all of us to benefit from. And, Michael, we feel strongly in recommending this. I know you do. We do. Uh, certainly. It's a wonderful commentary. And a and closing question, uh, Tom, what are you working on now? Are you working on another commentary? I am. I'm doing, I'm doing a, 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 a major commentary on the book of Revelation. I'm, I must be crazy, Ooh. right? But uh, that's, what <laughs> that's what I'm working on. I've and actually, I've written about four hundred thousand words, so it's it's a big one. Wow! Wow! So that's longer than Revelation. 
<laughs> and not as good. Not as good as Revelation, that's for sure. So. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Uh, and we look forward to talking to you again soon, very soon. Well, thanks for having me on, Michael and Wayne, and, and uh, God blessings, God's blessings on you. Well, Michael, as we near the end of our hour together, I'm thankful, and I'm grateful that we had the chance to present uh, this material today to our friends who are listening. Your study on the I Am's of Jesus, the mind of Jesus, earlier from Sandy Cove, and then Tom Schreiner's conversation just now in First and Second Peter and Jude. Rich stuff. Yeah, it's wonderful to, to talk to people who've, who've engaged with Scripture uh, the way Tom has. I mean, you know, any question, there's no question that's going to trip him up. <laughs> And that Revelation commentary he's working oh, on. Oh, man. Boy, that, that sounds massive, doesn't I it? I can't wait to see that. And he said he's almost done, so we'll, we'll have it here in a year or so. Yeah. Hey, I have time to share this that came to us from Nola, who listens, who says, Hello, Michael. While searching for your CDs, I found your podcast last week, and I'm once again connected to your teachings. I first enjoyed your music in 1985, attending college, and wore out two cassette tapes during those four years. Then in 2003, I attended the Scribbling in the Sand Conference in Glen Erie in Colorado Springs. Michael, your teaching helped me understand and learn that my quirky, creative side is a genuine (laughs) gift from God. If you recall, you called us weirdos, and we completely embraced the moniker. (laughs) Would you kindly sing Grace Be With You All? Every time I hear this song, my heart is filled with joy, gratitude, and peace with deep appreciation and thankfulness. Thank you, Nola. Yeah, that was great. We did a conference of uh, called Christ in the Creative Process, and they were mostly songwriters. And I would start by yeah. saying, welcome, weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> you meant it very affectionately. I'm oh, sure. I meant it in the, best, in the best sense of the term. <laughs> well, she asked for the song, Grace Be With You All. Uh, we're going to hear it in a moment as we close. You want to say anything about it? Well, this is me trying to write a benediction. Uh, a formal benediction, and uh, I don't know whether I, I hooked it or not, but I do like this song. Well, I think it serves as the perfect benediction for our hour together. So let's listen now to Michael Card. Grace be with you all. Forget not 
the sufferings of Jesus and bear the disgrace that he bore confessing his name for Christ is the same yesterday today and forever Thankful for this song from Michael that wraps up this session of In the Studio with Michael Card. If this time together has been valuable for you, please take a moment and pass along your comments to us. Share the link with a friend or post a review of this podcast. And we hope you'll take a moment and email your reactions to the hour. You can send your comments, song requests, or questions to us when you write in the studio at michaelcard.com. We look forward to reading your email. Again, in the studio at michaelcard.com. And learn about Michael's books, his music, and conference ministry so you can expand on what you've heard in this session at michaelcard.com. We're excited about the partnership with our sponsors at the Christian Standard Bible when you visit csbible.com. Find an edition of this new translation that fits your needs. This month, we're highlighting a wonderful companion resource that can aid you as you go deeper in the scriptures. When you visit csbible.com, search for the Christian Standard Commentary. Many gifted Bible teachers have contributed their long-time study of the Bible, and now you can benefit from their years of research. And when you order, use the promotion code in the studio, typed with no spaces, to receive your 30% discount on CSB purchases through LifeWay. The Christian Standard Commentary at csbible.com. For all of us on the team, Ron Davis, Susan Sermon, Lance Mansfield, and our producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Thanks for listening to this edition of In the Studio with Michael Card.